And always remember, this is always two-way interview. I love when founders ask me, can I speak with other founders from your portfolio? Yes, please, because I know they're going to be my biggest advocates. I'm not afraid of that. I'm proud of that. Welcome to Venturing Women, a podcast about female founders, investors, and ecosystem enablers. Hey, this is Derek Mkalva, your host. Have you heard about business angels? I find the term a little bit weird, but okay, it is what it is. Business angels, so angel investors, are people who invest their own money in early-stage startups in exchange for company shares. Angels also often advise and mentor founders, and that's why founders sometimes refer to angel investments as smart money. My guest, Rita Villas-Boas, is an experienced business angel. Beyond that, she's a marketing professional, entrepreneur, and limited partner founder at Schilling, a community-driven venture capital fund. Finally, Rita is a founding member of the first classic liberal party in Portugal. Her career spans seven countries and three continents. Rita and I talk about the role business angels play, how you can find an angel, and how founders and business angels can build a mutually beneficial relationship. Enjoy. Hi, Rita. Welcome to Venturing Women. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm super glad to be here. We're recording this episode at your place. Thanks for your hospitality. So we face a very, very difficult challenge here. I'm not sure if you realize that, but we have to give a brief introduction to your very multifaceted career and life, which spans seven countries, three continents, you're a marketing professional, you're a founder, you're an investor, so many different things. So please tell me a story. Okay, the short version, otherwise we'll be here for the whole week. I was born in Porto. I went to study biotechnology because I'm a curious person and I wanted to decode the human genome and I thought it was gonna, something's going to take so long. So I had to study microbiology and I graduated very early on. So in biotech, you have three main areas like food, environment, health. And I really like food. So I went to work at Denmark and I did my thesis there on freeze drying. But then I realized when I was working there that the marketing people and people working more on the management side was more like me. I'm a more extrovert communication person. So I, when I came back after a brief period of being academia as an as a assistant professor, I, I found my way to L'Oreal. And two years in L'Oreal, Portugal, then Gillette, Portugal, then Gillette, Iberia. And by 28, I was running a big business of hundreds of millions for Iberia, Max Free. And then P&G actually acquired Gillette and I got promoted. So then I went to Geneva. I had a couple of assignments, one European, another one global, always increasing my level of leadership until I thought I was on top of the world. And that's when I had this moment of fear, probably the first time in my life. So you know what I did? I ran. You, I didn't you, ask for help, no. Wait, you were on the top of the world and then you felt fear? Well, because that was the time when I had the first vulnerability. I knew, of course, you have to fail sometimes and you don't know and you need to ask help. Mm. And so I think in my generation, this happened a lot. I was 
32, 33, and I needed help and I didn't know how to ask, even though PNG is exactly the place where it's okay to ask help. Procter and Gamble, you mean? Procter and Gamble. So I was very proud. So I ran away, which was great because at the end I ended up spending almost a year traveling around in a backpack and diving and parting and diving in Southeast Asia. And then while I was there, my cousin had given my name to a headhunter and said, you know, what are you doing? And I thought it'd be nice to come back home to Portugal, where I hadn't been for years, and went to Porto to work for the, the biggest wine company in Portugal. And that was fantastic experience because you come from a big organization and then you're in a small organization, but you look at the whole supply chain, right? So from the grapes until the consumer, and it's a very different uh, business because you're very many different channels and you work with distributors. So, And you drink nice wine. And you drink nice wine. Fantastic. Yes. So that was an amazing experience working for a family business. I was the first woman doing many, many things there. And then after, because, you know, I had been again sometime in Portugal and I thought, well, I still need that experience in Asia because I left Asia with that sour flavor. So I wanted to live there as a, you know, as a professional. Mm -hmm. So I got a job in a startup in the wine industry. I stayed there for four years. You have to adapt every day already in a startup, let alone China. And so my contract finished in 17. And then in 17, I come back to Portugal. And I found myself with a lot of people who were unhappy here with the politics. So we created a political party. My father was born in Africa, so I got um, two contracts, two family business as well, one in beer and drinks business, the other one in consumer goods. So again, another experience in Africa. And then I was coming in 2020 to stop traveling so much and had a great time in Europe. And then what happened? COVID happened. And I could be home and I started realizing all the small investments I've been doing. I had my whole one full-time job. And then I realized that maybe this is something I can do. I can be a little angel. How did this whole story with investing begin? To be honest, it wasn't planned. It just happened. So one of my first investments happened because I was in China and a friend who had this project and other friends were investing and they said, why don't you join us? So it's always like friends and family, right? And so the second investment was some friends from here. So you got that first calls of people saying, you know, you maybe have a little bit of money, but you know about this area, consumer goods, building a business. So it's more about your contributions to the very early stage startup. So Business angels are, by definition, individuals who can provide capital in very early stage, but the risk is very high in very early stage. And people listening to this interview uh, may be unfamiliar with the term business angel. Let's explain what it is. Why is it an angel? Do you have <laughs> wings? <laughs> I, love, I love that you asked that question. Well, as a, as a properly definition, it's an individual who provides capital in exchange of equity or convertible debt. So it's individuals who believe in you, an idea, what kind of project you have. And because it's so early stage that normally they try to have a higher return as well, 
let's put three types of categories that, I, that I'm more aware of. You know, typical founders who had exits and they love to support other uh, founders. So and they first build their own business, they had an exit, they earned some money through this exit and that's how they can invest that money absolutely. into, into yeah, other businesses. Absolutely. Operators like me, people who've been in consumer industry. I think the, the term operator is extremely confusing. I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out what it was. So an operator is essentially someone who has been working in the industry who's not an, a professional investor. Absolutely, absolutely. You're so, not a venture yeah, capitalist. You, you're not a venture capitalist. And then you have the venture capitalists that work in a company and then on the side... If there's no conflict of interests, they still invest. They burn the midnight oil and they <laughs> parallel they invest. Yeah, right. Because, you know, they may be investing in fintech in a fund. And then if you're a woman or you want to support uh, female founders, then you may have a ticket, smaller tickets where you can add value to that. So I see those three types and I'm a typical operator. Someone who comes from the industry side of things. All right. So which role do angels play in the startup ecosystem? Well, I don't know about other angels. I think the role I play is, uh, well, it's a lot of roles, to be honest. Depends on the startup. Sometimes I like to think that I'm more than a mentor. I'm a sponsor. I just learned this term. What exactly does it mean? What's the difference so with the, the, mentoring? The, yeah. So the difference of mentoring is so you're mentoring, you're telling someone, you should go to this conference, right? And you should talk to this person. Sponsoring is when you say, actually, I'm going to introduce you to that person and I want you to be a speaker in that conference. And you make things happen for that person. Can so. you be my sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right? I think that's uh, the next level. I love it. And then you have to think about raising money and bringing either other angels, bringing syndicates, bringing VCs who are in that vertical, but also delivering a dashboard of KPIs, creating a better pitch, everything that is related with the cold email and the startup is better prepared for the next few months. So an angel investor would invest at very early stages of company maturity at those stages that were maybe not attractive, not lucrative for venture capitalists, for instance, when startups are looking for more modest amounts of money, so that's where, that's when angel yeah. would step in. Most yeah, probably. I think, uh, well, I think naturally pre-seed and then some seed if you get extra cash or if you can be in a, a syndicate. A syndicate is typically a group of angels mm -hmm. who get together to then support the next round or come in in a seed stage, for example. Mm -hmm. Is that valid to say that angel is more engaged in operations of a startup or have a closer relationship with the founder than, for instance, a venture capitalist would have? Well, not necessarily. My first instinct was to say yes, because that's the way I do it, right? This is the way I add value. Some angels, they just don't want to be bothered because they have their own life and they're busy. So it really depends. My role is very hands-on, unless you tell me not to. I think it's really important that there's no miscommunication because this is one of the sidetracks of, of the relationship of angels and founders, that if you don't have this very clear, that can happen. I want to talk about building the relationship between founders and angels. There's four things, probably more, but four things that I would say could be problematic in a relationship between founders and angels. So 
if the angel wants to take too little or too much stake in the company, which means if you put too little, then you don't have skin in the game. If you put too much, you jeopardize the potential of growth for that company because they need to raise more money, right, in the future. And the second one is not knowing enough the founding team. How's their interaction? You never have a, a team that is a 10 over 10. I'm happy if there's a 7 or 8 out of 10 team. What I have to leverage is helping them to get to the 10. If the CEO or the founding team are not the best salespeople, that's not going to work. You can mentor them. The third thing is having a too short of a time horizon on both ways and being optimistic on that. So people really need to be realistic on, on numbers. And this is why it's so important to have that finance view that is very rational. And then, of course, the, the worst thing is then it could be end up in a vicious circle of deteriorating communication. No show ups in meetings and then suddenly you're insulting each other or whatever. So I think being ready for the worst as an angel and as a founder is very important because the worst can happen. I mean, the worst can happen is, okay, you lose your money. That's the worst can happen. It is important, but it's not the end of the world. So always low expectations and over deliver. If I'm a founder, how, maybe we start from the basics, how can I find the right angel? How do I even define the profile of angel that I would like to bring on board to my startup? Well, I don't think people are hiding. I mean, if people are hiding, they don't want In to be found. In plain sight. <laughs> they don't want to be found. If, if angels want to be found, people like me, that I want to be found and other angels, you reach out also to founders. This is how I, I got to meet uh, founders that I've invested. I reached out. I'm in communities like the Alma Angels that is started in UK, but it's widespread in, in Europe, going to events, seminars. We have WhatsApp groups, Telegram groups, so endless. LinkedIn. Endless, endless WhatsApp endless, groups. <laughs> endless. And then we are a lot of, of women trying to support women, which is, I love it. I Amazing. love it. I, I'm yeah. so happy about that. And still that. only 1% of female get uh, money in Europe. So that's why I think uh, there's never ending to support each other. Okay. So as a founder, I can look into LinkedIn. I can look into syndicates or communities of angels. How do I define this profile? Who is the angel that I need for my team? Sometimes you may need somebody that is from, let's say, education technology. You may want to have someone that is expert in that field. You may want to have somebody that is going to help you raise money. You, so you may want to have three or four different profiles of angels, right? So you need to also map that. And always remember, this is always two-way interview. I love when founders ask me, can I speak with other founders from your portfolio? Yes, please, because I know they're going to be my biggest advocates. I'm not afraid of that. I'm proud of that. What should they talk about? Imagine I'm a founder and then I reach out to another founder that you invested in. What are the questions I should definitely ask this founder? You know, is Rita for real? Is this, <laughs> is this, is this, well, you, you're real. <laughs> well, but, you know, like the optimism, the support I give sometimes, there's a lot of coaching. Bringing that maturity, resilience, patience that you need to be a founder. 
It's believing in you as well. You have doubts all the time. Like I had my doubts almost 20 years ago. So I'm just telling someone that is in a similar situation, regardless if I was a founder or not. It's just your journey as a human and as a person that's been living so many countries and seen so many things. I can share a lot. And I'm very passionate about it. We talked a lot about setting expectations. And I think it is critical to map those expectations even before signing anything, before sealing this contract, because it's almost like a marriage. Absolutely. <laughs> in a way. So what are the mistakes that founders can avoid in this very, very critical early phase of building a relationship with an angel? The other day I was talking with this biotech PhD, very smart person. And she was telling me that somebody wanted 20% in her company. And 20% is a lot of money, especially in biotech, that you need to grow and scale much more. So she's saying, am I crazy? People are telling me that I should do it. Say, no, you shouldn't do it. And she said, oh, thank God, you're the first person telling me that. Well, apparently you're not surrounded by the right people. I think it's only a good opportunity for investors if it's good opportunities for founders. That's true. That's true. So can you give me maybe any examples from your experience when this relationship building went really well or on the contrary, it, it was terrible and what exactly happened? It was in a project that I really wanted to invest and but the numbers weren't showing and the founder said that he really wanted to hire a COO, that person who goes sell the products. I said, what? You're not going to be a salesperson? No, I'm not going to invest in you. I'm sorry. You know, you when you're still pre-seed or seed, why would you pay someone to do a better job than you if you're the owner of the company? Nah, no way. You're the so, main salesperson. You are. You are. I know it's hard. And one of my founders, she's like, I know, I know I'm not that person, but I know I'm the one who can sell it, you know? And my role is to support and more so is to help her do those five-minute pitches, one-hour pitches, two-hour speeches, until she goes to all the details, patents, and PhD stuff. I want to go back to your story of living in different countries and different continents and ask, what were the major learnings from all these trips and living abroad that you keep on using to support founders that you invest in? Oh, my God, I could tell you so many, but um, let me choose four for you. You like the number four. No, I actually, that. no, don't say that. I like number eight. Number four is... Uh, well, not, eight would be just a little bit too much. I, exactly. Let's exactly. Okay, let's so, stick with So normally, four. culture eats strategy for breakfast. You're in China. You are in Africa. You are in Vietnam. You are in America. You can have the best strategy and still get eaten by the culture. For example, my first time in Hong Kong... Many years ago, you know, I was uh, getting to a, a dinner. I was just social. People handle you the business card. And I didn't take it with two hands. Oh. I know, I know. I was very young. I didn't take it two hands. So that's losing face for the person giving to me. I lost that person forever. It wasn't that important because it was social. But I learned that it's not how you treat people in your country. It's the way people expect to be treated in their own country, in their culture. Adaptation. Right? I've been able to adapt to cultures and crises and moments. And you're not born with that. You learn how to do it. I think that's what you also have in startups. You always need to adapt. It, startups have been pivoting for 10, 20 times. Adapting, 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 always adapting. And then resilience and patience. Things don't happen 
in you know 10 years of experience they need 10 years and the last one is never losing my authenticity when i was more insecure i think you wanted to show that you're this person or the person that people expect you to be as especially as a woman right what, what, you, did, what did you think people expected you a few years ago i don't know people expecting me or as i was expecting myself to be more as a man i don't know i don't know Regardless, now I'm being myself for a long time, and this is me. And I'm loud, and I'm provocative, and I, I don't uh, agree with many things in politics or governments or systems, and I say that loud. And you know what? There's people who love me and people who don't like me so much. Nothing in between. But I don't want in between, right? <laughs> right? Why don't you want the between? <laughs> This is so much me. <laughs> right? You see? We're going to be friends. <laughs> Absolutely. You've spoiled a little bit the political part of your life. So I always ask my guests about a side in their life that is not strictly related to their career, but define them as leaders, as founders, as investors. You built the Iniciativa Liberal in Portugal. And I hope I pronounced it nicely. <laughs> <laughs> you did well. Well, me and, uh, and, and one of the founding members... A liberal political party. Which role does politics play in your life and how did it shape you? Well, first, my, my grandfather was a parliament member. When we had a dictatorship, he was already liberal. So he was uh, in the colonies in Africa. Even though all these speeches were censored, <laughs> he still played a role in the parliament. When I was a child, you know, I always learned about democracy and liberalism and live in a state where you can define your choices and you can be an entrepreneur and you are responsible for your own actions. So that was always there in me. The reason why I spent so many years, 17 years outside of Portugal is because of this vicious circle that we have, you know, in crisis and no growth and unhappiness of people, disappointment. And so immigrants leave and they don't want to come back. And so when in 17, I decided that I wanted to return to Portugal, I was still 42 or something. And then I thought, if I'm going to live here the next 40 years of my life, because I am, because this is my country, I can't just complain. We need to change things. We've been very successful so far. After five years, we have eight parliament members and me shaking things up. My main goal, of course, is the economy. We need lower taxes. So we need less power of state, more autonomy and decentralization for the country, health and education and taxes. So these are the three flagships that are mine. And I support the parliament group. And I'm a, a big believer that we're going to have a much bigger weight in not only in Portugal, but across Europe. So how did the step of co-founding or launching this initiative and this party change you as a person? If you're supporting a new party in a country and you're showing your face, you're not being the political correct. And that's the authenticity I was talking to you about. The moment I put my name there, actually I was a candidate in 2019, I cross that line. So then I said, well, oh, finally I can be me. And I will speak out about my political ideas because I'm not trying to be friends with government or people I work with. I'm just trying to make it better for the society, to be successful for the startups, for the kids. You know, our kids are not even living in Portugal anymore. You mentioned shaking things up and 
I want to wrap up this interview with the question, how do you aspire to shake things up for the female founders? So as an angel, I just started to have a taste of it. So I want to build something bigger. So as an angel, we've invested, I think, around 10 companies. But I have friends say, oh, Rita, you invested in this company. This looks so cool. And so I thought, how can I bring these friends or people that are interested in supporting not only female founders, but other like impact, uh, another vertical that I, I'm interested in consumer, which is the, the things that I know and femtech, you know, because if you have all men sitting at a table in an investment committee deciding issue invest in tampons or, or in endometriosis, maybe they still need to go and ask their wives or their daughters. So I want to bring more women as limited partners. Limited partners are individuals and organizations who invested their capital in the fund, but they're not in charge of running the fund. In comparison, general partners are investment professionals who manage the fund and all its operations. I want to bring smaller checks because that's how you democratize it, bring more people in if I need to and manage that maybe as a syndicate. Well, I'm, I'm considering different options. I want to support that middle ground between when you already got maybe a grant, maybe angels, friends and family, and then you need to reach seed, but then you're lacking that 100K, 150K that maybe will take you long, a long way and you don't have it and you end up having to work for a company and then you never become founders. How much better would be the society if these people had that extra amount of money? I think bringing more women into the table, smaller checks, so that we can deploy to more startups with female co-founders as well, but that will impact the future, let's say, five to ten years. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, share it with friends. Subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app to never miss a new episode. Leave a review in the app you use. Reviews help us to get better and let more people discover this podcast. For updates, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Telegram.